Support comes from Empower Missouri's Week of Action with in-person and virtual advocacy training for affordable housing, criminal justice, and food security initiatives March 25th through 28th. Registration at empowermissouri.org WOA. The Missouri General Assembly Special Session on Violent Crimes seemed to be going as planned. The Missouri Senate passed a multifaceted bill with both Republican and Democratic support aimed at clamping down on violence in St. Louis and Kansas City. But things changed dramatically this week when Republican House leadership announced that they were going to deal with the particulars of the bill one by one instead of all at once. State Representative Lakeisha Bosley of St. Louis says this is a big change than what's been expected. And the St. Louis Democrat joins the latest episode of Politically Speaking to talk about the implications of some of the measures and the impact of last week's primary. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. It's a little complicated in Bolivar because there is a Parsons family there. But we also knew that it was important to make sure that that we got to where we needed to go. You know if you walk in a room and you're getting ready to make a decision and everybody in the room looks like you, you need to stop. And right now what happens in the United States Senate is as critical as anywhere else in the country. I really want the state to succeed. We want everybody to uh, know that we're all working together. I just worked hard to try to build my name where I didn't have the money. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent, Jason Rosenbaum. Joining me today is my co-host, St. Louis Public Radio Statehouse reporter, Jacqueline Driscoll. And joining us as our special guest today, the state representative for the 79th House District, which represents a portion of St. Louis City, we have as our guest today. Hey, everybody. Representative Lakeisha Bosler. Things have gone completely haywire in Jefferson City. Um, And I I think I'm going to have Jacqueline and you kind of try to explain what's going on. For our listeners, Governor Mike Parsing called a special session aimed at uh, passing legislation to uh, lower violent crime. A bill with a number of things in it passed the Senate. It went to the House, and the House announced yesterday basically that that Senate bill is dead, and it's going to be split into a bunch of different bills. Representative Bosley, what is going on here? Because I am so confused. When I say that I am just as confused as you, but I am... I think that it's a necessary evil, and I'm kind of okay with it. Um, And the reason why I'm okay with it is because it stops a really bad omnibus piece of legislation that will not drive us to the point of putting 14-year-olds in prisons, adult prisons, regardless of whether you have language in there that says that they shall be separated from the adult population if they're under the age of 17. The problem with that is, is, you know, who says that that's not placing uh, kids in solitary confinement the entire time? Um, what are they be doing? You know, shout out to Senator Carla May for being able to negotiate putting in language in there that, are, that makes it mandatory that kids who are in their 14, 15, 16 years old have to go through a process of getting mandatory uh, GED equivalency uh, programs of, you know, making sure they come out with something of substantial use. You know, these jails are supposed to be rehabilitative, right? Um, So we want to make sure that we give these kids some type of access uh, to something that will benefit them once they come out and and are rehabilitated. So now we hear the governor um, blew up the bill, so to speak, and opened up the special session 
to concurrent jurisdiction against uh, Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, which is absolutely a personal attack. This has nothing to do with this being something that is very beneficial for the city of St. Louis or even the state of Missouri. Um, never in the history across this country um, that I know of have we ever seen a circuit attorney actually have their jurisdiction taken away from them by an attorney general. And let's not mention in the state of Missouri, you have a current attorney general who fought against an innocent man from being released from prison. That in itself should show you or give you some idea the biasness of the difference between the current circuit attorney we have and what we will end up with with uh, concurrent jurisdiction, which I think is absolutely within itself appalling and it should not happen at all. For our listeners, I want to give them a little context about what concurrent jurisdiction actually is. Um, What's being proposed now is uh, legislation that would allow the attorney general to basically come into the city and try homicide cases uh, if I guess, A, the circuit attorney asked for assistance, or B, if the attorney general feels like the case isn't being adjudicated correctly. And what you were referring to there uh, about uh, the innocent man you're referring to is Lamar Johnson. And that's a case that has come out of the city, which features a person who Kim Gardner feels has been wrongly convicted and is trying to get released from prison. And uh, Attorney General Schmidt has been fighting her on that. So I want to make clear to our listeners what you're talking about there. Yeah, that's one instance with Lamar Johnson. But there is another instance of someone in St. Louis County where he was just released after 15 plus years in prison. Um, and he wasn't even near the, uh, the scene of the crime at the time. He was in the city, but the crime happened out in St. Charles County, and he just recently was released uh, for a 15-year bid that he didn't even have anything to do with, and our current attorney general fought against that release. He, they fought, he fought against someone being released, innocently released from prison. Um, so even with that, uh, and kind of to go back into the, the concurrent jurisdiction, it also allows him to, you know, do if the case is issued within 60 days um, after to, uh, the police apply for charges, he can go in and take over that case. And then if uh, Kim Gardner decides that he wants to have hope, as you said, or he feels like he, he deems it necessary to come in and step in and just take it away, he can do that also, which I don't think it's in its way, you know, dimming our voice as uh, the the individuals who live in the city. For someone we elected overwhelmingly over 60%, will I say, in recent days, in about a week ago, we just reelected her over overwhelmingly. So that comes in and takes our voice away, and we argue local control of the legislature um, on the state uh, side all the time about local control, local control. This is an instance where local control is impeded on, and it's only beneficial to the argument uh, when people try to use that, that narrative. In that press conference with the governor, he also brought in Attorney General Eric Schmidt, kept reiterating that this was not personal. This was something to fight violent crime and to you know get more violent offenders off of the streets. Um, Jason, I believe you spoke with Representative Nick Chor, who is in favor of concurrent jurisdiction, and I just wanted uh, to play the clip 
so our listeners can hear why. And I've said on the record many different times that, you know, we could pass the silver bullet when it comes to crime. Uh, but if we have prosecutors that either A, need help or are refusing to prosecute the criminals pursuant to the law that we passed, it's not going to help out. So we need, a, we need a team effort. And I think the concurrent jurisdiction piece that I'm going to be offering is definitely going to help all the team players uh, come to the table and, and help drop these crime numbers by sending the most violent offenders to prison. Have they, ha- have they even had the conversation with Circuit Attorney or Kim Gardner? That's, that's where I am with it. I don't think they have. If she needed help, she would have asked for help. And the thing is, is the Missouri Legislative Black Caucus a year ago asked for help from Governor Parsons and was told that it's not the right time to have this conversation. Let's have this conversation during regular session. We tried to have these conversations during regular session where it was addressing the root causes of violent crime. Um, getting after-school programming for kids, um, making it a mandatory issue where we could get witness protection, which is something that they picked up. And the governor has, you know, been very diligent of working out, but only giving a million dollars for witness protection when he says that we have a problem with um, crimes not being murdered specifically, not being solved. The thing is, is, you know, this is not an attack on anyone, but we need to have evidence. You can't convict a person without full evidence as the, um, as the law requires. You are innocent until proven guilty. So you have to give the circuit attorney, you have to give the prosecuting attorney clear and concise evidence. We do not want to convict people falsely and wrongfully, as we have seen throughout the state, that we have to go back and now rescind, rescind, a, a case and a uh, vacate a um, a plea. We have to vacate this um, th- this plea from individuals, and then now we have to go back and reopen those wounds for those families and find an active investigation to try to find out who is the real person that committed this crime. I think that Circuit Attorney Kim Gardner, by doing her due diligence of making sure she has clear and concise evidence to convict people of these violent crimes and these murders, is where we should be doing and how we should want our circuit attorney and our prosecuting attorneys to, you know, move forward. So they didn't even ask her for help. They didn't even ask her if she needed help is the bottom line. Why, how can you step on someone's toes and they didn't even tell you that they needed help? You didn't even come and ask. I do want to address this because you are very vocal about the governor's call for a special session. Um, you actually wrote a letter to the governor saying that there's no more until moments to address policing policies and community relations. One, I wanted you to explain what did you mean by that? And two, have you heard from the governor? Have you had a sit down conversation with the governor about his call for special session or about any of these um, you know, reforms that you would like to see? I know he didn't wanna open the special session up um, to a broader scope, even, even though he did do, the, you know, he did add on the concurrent jurisdiction, but um, I just wanted to give you the chance to address that. And he didn't want to open it up to a broader scope, and he did that anyway. <laughs> so um, and it's kind of one of those things where if you really wanted to do it and you really wanted to address the problem, you would do it. And that's not something that he's done. Um, and what I meant by that is we here as African-Americans and minorities in this state and across the country all the time that we'll, we'll wait and let's try to handle this on another level. Let's Let's wait until we have more time. Let's 
wait. It's always the waiting game when it's time to address issues that directly affect our communities and people of color. But this is no longer a time to wait. We can no longer wait. We've been waiting for over 400 years. We've even, if you don't even want to go back to 400 years, let's go back 50 years. My father is 86 years old and has been waiting his entire life for those changes to happen in his community. Um, I am 27 currently, and I'm still waiting. I haven't nearly lived as long as he has. And for those individuals, the seniors who live in our community to still identify and say that we have the same problems that we have had for over 50 years with community and policing is in itself appalling. Everybody should be baffled by that. Every single person should say, well, wait, this is a problem and it needs to be fixed now. I, that is not saying that there's an attack on the policing community because there are great officers out there. There are extremely involved officers who are in the communities, who are fighting for their communities to make their communities better. But the problem is that you have those uh, uh, unqualified officers who are out there on the streets that are giving police officers and the, police, uh, the, the policing community a very bad name. And we do not want those officers to stand any longer. What happened with George Floyd, that officer had over 17 complaints from one department and more from another department. He just bounced from one department to another department. That is a problem. We can no longer allow those type of officers to commune, uh, to be a part of our communities and out here in the streets because they're going to continue to do what they want to do no matter what because there is no, they're not being reprimanded for those crimes. You know, when you assault someone, if I assault someone, I am held responsible. I have to go in front of a judge, in front of a jury, in front of my peers, and I will be charged if I assault someone. Whereas police officers have this immunity that they should not have. If you physically assault someone without probable cause, there is no reason why you should be held, you shouldn't be held to the same standard that I am held as as a citizen, period. Is there anything in this special session conversation that you see right now that will help um, the communities in Missouri that are suffering you know, from violent crime? I think witness protection is something that could definitely be beneficial. Um, as we know that when witnesses can be intimidated, um, especially if somebody is very connected to the, the, to the people and to the streets, so to speak, they can touch and get to anyone that they want to. So I think this will give some sense of, you know, security to individuals who do want to come out and speak against um, the people who are in their communities, you know, running their communities in the ground. I think that definitely gives them, you know, some sense of they're trying to do something to protect me. Um, outside of that, you know, as I said, Senator May being able to negotiate the peace where if juveniles are in prison that they do get uh, some form of education, I think that is very, very good, and we should be doing that, and we should have been doing that beforehand, not just for uh, minors, but for also adults who are in prison, and I have to, you know, commend Director uh, Precise for that. She has been diligent, and she's took, taken uh, the director and commissionership um, of the DOC, the Department of Corrections. She's been working actively towards doing just that. Um, as far as the residency goes, I think that this is, again, government overreach. Um, we have it on the ballot in November. I think the citizens of the city need to be the deciding factor 
of whether this passes or not. And again, I don't want someone from Boone County or from Jackson County voting on something that directly and only affects St. Louis City, period. I wanted to open this up as Jason and I have both mentioned the session has been derailed. What is it? What was the deciding factor that kind of blew up the special session to say? Um, I think it was just everything. There is a lot in this bill. There is a, uh, as you said, there is a, a lot of disdain for some of the the policies that are being pushed forward. Um, people do have consciences, you know? People do have a moral compass where they're like, all right, this is too far. No matter how conservative or not, they will definitely, you know, go to a place where they say, you know what, this is just too much. And I, I commend those on the other side of the aisle and those on my side of the aisle who, you know, have a, a little pushback and a lot of pushback for some of these policies by saying, hold on, wait, guys, this is too much, this is too far, let's rail back and actually evolve what we're trying to do and do it the right way. 14-year-olds, um, as I said, you know, these are seventh and eighth graders. I, I want to put them in perspective for people. We're talking about middle schoolers going to adult prison. These are seventh and eighth graders at 14 years old. When they said 12 years old, this is fifth and sixth graders. They're talking about putting in adult prison. That should give you a mindset of how small these children are. I tweeted, I believe it was just last night. If you haven't had the opportunity, you need to go watch a prison song on Netflix. That will give you a kind of idea of what happens when you imprison children too early. You mess up their lives. You blow up their lives. So you don't want to do something like that. You want to find a way to defer them from doing crime further. And that is something, you know, I will say that circuit attorney, and I'd have to bring it back to Kim Gardner, that our circuit attorney has been, you know, very proactive in doing. She has tried her very best and has been doing so effectively for, you know, those first nonviolent offenders of giving them a second chance to, you know, redirect their lives so when they come out of the system that they actually have a chance at a normal life, some type of normalcy where they're not just deemed unworthy to begin with. So I, I think that that compass is what we are seeing, and I am happy to see it, that to know that there is someplace very bipartisanly that we can say this is just too far. This is not just a Democrat thing. This is a people thing, and I am very happy about that. We'll be right back after this quick break with Representative Lakeisha Bosley. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Lakeisha Bosley, a Democrat from St. Louis. And there's been a lot of attention of the fact that the three black Democrats in the Senate voted no on SB1 and the white Democrats all voted yes. And what's interesting to me about this, because some of the white Democrats have defended themselves by saying they don't like the whole bill, but they support aspects of it enough to vote yes, is oftentimes in Missouri legislative politics, when a black Democrat votes contrary to what the Democratic Party does. They often get scorned and are the 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 subject of really intense criticism, whether you saw it with some black Democrats that didn't like clean Missouri or back in 2008, black Democrats that didn't like campaign donation limits. I, I want to hear your perspective on this, because this is this is this is kind of mushroomed beyond 
like the legislative bubble and into the public consciousness. And I'd like to hear your take on it. So, and here's the thing, and I appreciate you for, you know, posing that question and asking that. If we go back in history, we see ultimately that the distrust between the African-American community and minorities and government uh, stemmed far longer than just the Missouri State Legislature. In 1968, you know, you had the Fair Housing Act which you know went with redlining and against having minorities specifically african americans to be able to be homeowners and to get into qualified homes um, you have these situations where we can go to the 1994 crime bill, the three strikes are out, which ultimately affected the African-American community. So we have to look at the history of how legislation has disenfranchised black people at a whole. So our white counterparts, our white Democratic colleagues not voting with us pretty much shows that we have not gone anywhere as Democrats of building that bridge between the black community and government. Um, so with the defending them, defending themselves, that is a weak defendant. You, you can't defend yourself when it comes to morally voting correctly. When we are expected as African-Americans to stand up and you know fight for a plethora of issues, we fight for everyone's issues, but when it's time for people to stand up and fight for our issues, when it directly affects our communities, especially our children, we get the vote that we just got. It's us standing on our own side and no one else coming to help us out. And I don't say no one, but in this instance, the, the Senate and our Democratic colleagues of not standing up and fighting with us. In a sense, we were just sold out. In a sense, we were, you know, pretty much given the short end of the stick of saying you're on your own. We, we, we negotiated these things and this should be okay, but it's not okay because we are still going to have our 14-year-old sons and daughters incarcerated. We're still going to have, you know, our children getting their education in a prison system. They're not going to be with their own peers. They're going to be in solitary confinement, you know, by themselves without having social skills or soft skills, you know. So let's look at that and let's, you know, unpack what that really looks like. And we need to be realistic and be willing to have that hard conversation. And no one feels like their character is, you know, being dismantled. It's just showing who you are under pressure. Um, and under pressure, you're either going to stick with me when times are tough, or you're going to just stick with me when it's convenient. And I think that's what happened. That vote was just very convenient. And it was a hard vote to have. You know, we all have hard votes. But that should have been something that should have been morally uh, voted on. Before we move on, sorry, Jason, I wanted to ask just one final question, because I think it would, like, I would be remiss if we didn't reiterate um, the point that I think it is fair to say that there is a violent crime problem. There is a problem that needs addressing. As a representative from the St. Louis area, I just wanted to give you the opportunity um, to speak about that a little bit um, since we are seeing, you know, we saw it last summer, the representative black or the legislative black caucus calling on the governor to address this. I, I want to be able to reiterate to our listeners that a lot of the Democrats who are opposed to these policies it's not because they don't feel that there's a problem to address. Am I correct in saying that? Very correct, yes. 
there is definitely a problem and we do need to address it. There's root causes to these problems and it's only skyrocketing also right now because we're in a pandemic. There are a lot of people who are unemployed. People have been laid off, furloughed from their jobs. Businesses have gone under because they cannot sustain. So not only are you stacking a high poverty uh, problem in the city of St. Louis, especially on the north side, now you have a pandemic problem right on top. So you have two things that are conflicting with each other where kids are not even going to be able to go to school. And if they do go to school, it's a possibility that they get sick. And their parents could get sick and their parents could, you know, by the grace of God, not, you know, perish from this, you know, invisible enemy that we may end up with more homeless children and children who have to be adopted or who don't even have a next of kin or a caregiver. So we, we have to look at that in its full scope. Let's get people to the $15 minimum wage, which the city of St. Louis passed years ago, and the legislature stepped in and took it away. Let's go back to the fact that legislators for the city of St. Louis haven't been able to effectively govern their areas where we were elected to do that job because the state has to or would like to intervene when they say they love the city so much. When we are trying to address the problems in our district with our constituency, we are told that that's not the right thing to do. I advocated um, for the sheriff's department for deputies to be deputized. Senator Nasheed uh, uh, got a bill passed, I want to say it was 2017 or 2016, to allow the sheriff for, uh, in the city of St. Louis, the deputies to be post-certified. I tried to get dollars into the budget for the state post-commission to allow those deputies to be post-certified so we wouldn't have to have this residency problem. It's 160 deputies. It's 168, give or take, five or 10 deputies that we could post-certify and allow them to do some of the grunt work for the police department in helping out. We have an entire another force. We're the only, the only county, city not within a county in the state of Missouri that does not have their sheriffs and their, their deputies post-certified. Out of 114 counties, we are the only one. That is a problem. And we get pushback from the state legislature of people who don't even govern our city who tells us that's not a good idea or we can't do that because it's too much money for us. And this could have been something that could have helped affect the violent crimes, the surge of gun violence we're seeing. There is another portion of that where I found an ammo bill to try to address the gun violence. You know, you can't do anything with guns if you don't have the, the ammo to, you know, fill them. So right now we don't really have a ammo uh, state a, a state law for ammo. We have a federal law that we have to you know follow. But there you have to be 18 years or older to purchase ammunition. The problem with that is is people are creating cash businesses, so they don't have to have a structure of the sale and distribution of ammunition. If I wanted to, if I was 16 years old, go out to a gun show, there's no regulation for that in St. Charles and buy ammunition. I could bring it right back and then sell that in the street. And then what? Then now we're, we're having an influx of ammunition to supply these people and these individuals with uh, illegal firearms in our streets. We advocated to allow um, 
individuals to have a permit for a license and carry. Yes, we are a conceal and carry state, but if you have a permit, you're still in, you're purchasing your, your firearm legally, so now we know what type of firearm you have, and California was very beneficial in doing this. Um, they were very proactive, and it was beneficial for them in passing legislation that just went into effect in 2020, January of 2020, of the ammunition bill, where it, you have to go to a licensed dealer the same as you have to do with a firearm in order to receive ammunition. So you, you have after-school programming. We, we need to give kids something proactive for them to do. You have minimum wage, get people the, the dollars that they need and the resources that they need in order to survive. You have a problem with violent crime because people are in survival mode. They don't know where their next meal is going to go They or come from. You, and I commend Urban League, I commend, um, and I know this is going to sound biased, but I commend my uh, Brandon Bosley, Alderman Bosley. Every Monday and Thursday, they give free food out for, for families. It doesn't matter if, we, we, if they have enough, they give it out. They, they give out as much as possible as they can. So you have a lot of people stepping up to the plate to try to help curb the problem, but the problem doesn't just start with violent crime. There's an underlying issue for this, and we need to be addressing those, and we are not doing that in the legislature with any of these bills, with, if they're broken up or they maintain themselves as one ominous bill. We're not doing anything to address that. So we're about a week removed from the primary elections. You did not have an opponent this time after running in like a 600-way Democratic primary in 2018. So you will be returning to the legislature in 2021. But I think that the big story in St. Louis was the fact that a number of black women won prominent posts. You have Cori Bush, who will become the first black female congresswoman. We've talked about Kim Gardner winning by 60 percent. We saw Tashara Jones win re-election. And we have now going to be having an expanded uh, House caucus where instead of you being the only woman uh, to represent St. Louis in the House, you'll now have two others, Kimberly Ann Collins and Marlene Terry, having districts that include that. What better person to ask than a, a powerful black woman politician in St. Louis about their reaction to this the, this story of the primary of seeing the ascendancy of black women in St. Louis. What what do you think about all this? I am extremely enthusiastic about it. I am thoroughly happy um, because what it shows is, is people are ready for change. And I think that the the black woman has fought and shown that we are more than capable of coming to the aid of everyone when it is absolutely necessary. We fight for everyone's issue just as hard as we fight for our own issues. Um, so I believe that a lot of people are seeing that and understanding that this is not just a, a point of just a black issue. This is a people issue. And black women are fighting for the betterment of people. We are fighting to make sure that everyone has a voice and a seat at the table. And I just want to commend all of those women, including myself, because I was unopposed and I am grateful for that. And I don't take that for granted at all. Uh, but it just shows that there is a time and the time is now 
for us to stand up for that change we are looking for. There are powerful voices in African-American women, and we are here to stay, and we are here to fight for everyone. And I just commend all of those women for their, uh, for their victory. Had you been 30 years old, I think if you had run for that 5th District seat, you probably would have beaten all the candidates just because of a lot of things. Number one, uh, a lot of people like you in the legislature. You have the family history that we talked about. Um, but, you know, I also think that it may be good that you weren't able to run for the Senate because now you have to stay in the House for longer and not just focus on your next bid. And you can kind of expand your experience and your influence in the lower chamber. You know, I am extremely happy that um, now Senator-elect or Democratic nominee uh, Steve Roberts won that seat because we do need the perspective of the black man also in the legislature. Brian Williams was elected into the senator uh, as state senator for the 13th district, and it's been over 50 years since there was another African-American man in the legislature. Now we have two, and they're from both sides of the region, and I think that is very beneficial for us. And, you know, I just want to do the best job that I can as a legislator, uh, a representative in the House, and do that job effectively before even considering thinking anything else. Um, I think, you, as you said, people always look at something further instead of effectively doing the job that's in front of them right now. And, you know, the people electing me to do a job as state representative, if the people would have elected me to do anything else, I would have done just that. So I am, you know, happy to support whomever is in that Senate seat. And as I said, I am enthusiastic about um, another black man. There's not been a black man to hold that seat for a number of years, for almost 16 plus years. It's all been African-American women, which I'm extremely happy about that too. But we do need another perspective. So I'm thoroughly happy about supporting him and everything he does. I believe Jet Banks was the last fifth district uh, man to hold the seat. But let's, my, my final question is going to be about the statewide election. You are a Democratic committee woman for the state Democratic Party. Democrats have not done well in the last statewide elections, but we do have a new variable that's happened since the this this show happened, and that is uh, Kamala Harris is now the vice presidential nominee for Joe Biden. And the reason I'm mentioning this, even though she's from California, the last time we saw a black person on the presidential ticket, you saw a black turnout in Missouri go way up with Barack Obama to the point in 2008 where Democrats only lost the state by a few thousand votes. So I want to get your perspective on what this development means for someone like Nicole Galloway, the down ballot statewide or, or co- competitive state Senate races. This means everybody better be on guard. Be on your A game is what this means, uh, because now we have a team. We have a winnable and an electable team. And every Democrat across the state right now needs to get on board with this electable team. Uh, Senator Harris is a prosecutor. She was a former prosecutor. So that goes, you know, to the base that she can be objective when it comes to um, convictions. Why I may not, you know, necessarily agree with how that had happened and the people that she were convicting, but it just shows that she can have an objective view. And whereas um, Vice President Biden on the ticket with President 
Obama, he was able to come to the forefront and being, you know, a friend and an ally to the African-American community, as well as being a crossover appeal between the white community and the black community. So I think that this gives a lot of momentum to the Democratic Party. But I also want to tell the Democrats, you know, this is not a time to just get lazy. This is a time to amp up the value more. We need to get out more, get people excited, look into those races of individuals who are usually uh, Republican counties and Republican districts. Look for some other candidates and find out who they are, whether they're Republican or Democrat. You need to know who's all on the ticket and, and uh, vote for those people who align with your views, not just your party. Because we have seen that there have been Democrats who have voted for Republicans before and vice versa. So we need to make sure that we're looking at the people who are on the ticket and having a winnable and electable ticket such as Biden-Harris for 2020 gives us much more momentum. I just hope Trump doesn't, you know, try to do a stall like he's done before and, you know, try to overturn the election. Well, Representative, thank you so much for joining us on Politically Speaking. For all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. Jacqueline, how can people follow you on Twitter? At Driscoll NPR. And Representative, how can people follow you on Twitter or any other parts of the World Wide Web? Um, you can follow me at Team Bosley Mo 79. So that is uh, Bosley with the B, B O S L E Y M O 79. And that's on all social media platforms. Thank you very much. Until next time, so long.